Hello and welcome to Coppola Connections, the podcast where I'm shaking every branch of the Coppola family tree to find out, are they the greatest film family of all time? Last week, I was joined by George McGee to talk about the Roman Coppola second unit directed The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. This week, I'm very much keeping it in the family uh, by talking to George's brother, Charlie, all about the Spike Jones directed 1999 mind-bending comedy drama being John Malkovich. As is always the case, we'll be speaking about this film with all the spoilers intact. So if you haven't watched the film, please do be sure to check out a handy document in the show notes that will tell you if and where this film is streaming. Uh, You can always support the podcast on patreon.com forward slash caged in pod. So all that's left to do is to meet me on the seventh and a half floor, crawl inside a portal inside the mind of John Malkovich and make some Coppola connections. Shit, I've dropped my book. What, what, what the hell is this? Look, what's behind this cabinet? Fucking hell, where does this door lead to? Let me open it. What the hell is this? I guess I better crawl down and find out where the hell it leads to. This is like the film when I'm inside the mind of John Malkovich. I don't quite understand this. I thought that it only said his name loads of times when he was in his own head. I need to get the hell out of here. Seven and a half, right? Welcome to the seven and a half floor of the Merton Plummer building. My name is Craig Schwartz and I have an interview with Dr. Lester. Please have a seat, Mr. Juarez. My name is Schwartz. My name is Schwartz. Which of these two letters comes first, this one or this one? The symbol on the left is not a letter, sir. Damn, you're good. Do you know that I don't even know your name or where you work? And 50 other lines to get into a girl's pants. (laughs) So, honey, you thought any more about us having a baby? I think that maybe we should just wait to see if this job thing pays off. There's a tiny door in my office, Maxine, and it takes you inside John Malkovich. There's no such thing as a hole into somebody's brain. Yes, there is. You see the world through John Malkovich's eyes? And then after about 15 minutes... That's not me. I didn't say that. You're spin out into a ditch on the side of the New Jersey turnpike. It was amazing. Where the hell are we? We're about to be just subconscious. Do you think that it's kind of weird that John Malkovich has a portal? I mean, do you think that it might have some sort of significance? What is going on? Huh? I discovered that portal. It's my head! John Cusack... Cameron Diaz, Catherine Keener, and John Malkovich. Malkovich! Malkovich! Being John Malkovich. Hey, Malkovich, be fast!
A lot of people argue that 1999 was one of the best years for film in cinema history. That very well may be the case, but let's look what the Coppola family's contributions were to that year. John Schwartzman was uh, back, uh, backgrounded after Armageddon and lensed EdTV. Patricia Arquette was finding faith in Stigmata, and Sophia Coppola burst into film with her debut, The Virgin Suicides. Elsewhere, Sophia's then-husband, Spike Jones made his acting and directorial debuts. In acting, Spike was cast in David O. Russell's satirical black comedy war film, Three Kings, and directed the focus file chat for this episode, being John Malkovich. To join me on the seventh and the half floor today and take a step into the mind of this movie is one half of the Retro Ramble podcast, Charlie McGee. How are you, Charlie? Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. I am very well, and I am thrilled to be on your show, Petros. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm John Malkovich. What a mind to get into, and to make a film about it. I just, I love the fact that Kaufman was like, no, no, nobody else. No, it's got to be Malkovich. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a wild, it's a wild story, and um, Charlie Kaufman is just. I don't think there's. Well, this film, I don't think it could have been made. It can't be made. It could have been, couldn't have been made today, I don't think. And it's like... It couldn't have been made at a different time. With the, I mean, you talk about 90s films and you talk about... Uh, I mean, this is everything that's going on. If you're going to make a film like this, it would probably be in the 90s. If you're going to pick the right actor, it would probably be John Markovich. And there's people from films he's been in that pop up in this. And he's popped up on our podcast a few times. He was a very big actor then. And I think he's gone a bit more behind the curtain now. He's gone back to his thes thespian roots. But um, what, what an actor to choose. Yeah. And uh, yeah. But before we get too deep down in the mind of John Malkovich, uh, let's talk about your kind of your history with the Coppola family. Obviously, that is why we are here today so um when did you first become aware of the the coppola family maybe a specific member or the wider family as a whole well the the wider family as a whole is definitely a recent thing um being uh my age you know we uh we cover 80s and 90s film for a reason and that's when i was growing up so for me the first introduction to the coppola family was was watching a vhs with my dad there was an, there was a trailer for godfather part three and I was like, that looks great. My dad's like, you're not watching that. It's far <laughs> too violent. And it's like, oh, my poor dad. He had no idea about the films I was going to consume in the coming years. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, that is probably um, unknowingly, you know, Francis Ford Coppola built himself on, on that franchise. So I think I watched um, the first Godfather film when I was still at home, you know, uh, late teens and then it was when I was a fresher I remember this vividly that uh, one of my flatmates had and we got the rental tv with the surround sound and we were all buying dvds and yeah we sat down over a weekend and we hammered the trilogy we watched godfather one two and three and as you can imagine for a 18 19, 18 year old guy to watch those three films in one weekend um it it made an impression on me so um yeah I mean since then you know, obviously I know the, the links with all the other people, but to be completely honest, it was The Godfather. But to explain the sort of, I, I remember reading, I went and read a bunch of Mario Puzo books because of because of the impact this film made. And um, 
I think the, the 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 funny thing about when I actually got round to watching um, the Godfather films was that I'd seen it homaged. Given the age I'd been, I'd seen it homaged, parodied, and satired in my life. Oh, throughout my life, probably in the Simpsons and other things. And when I actually got round to it, it felt very familiar because it was such a big film. There's definitely like there's an element of trepidation I have when covering that film because there's almost that thing of like everybody kind of knows it. Like you're saying, it's like it's like a, a family member almost as you kind of like it's the the tropes of it are so well worn it's been referenced so many times in popular culture and it's for me it's like what more is there to be said about the godfather but eventually i will have to tackle it and get to it and it's uh yeah it's a it's a it's a fascinating one and your your story of watching it over a weekend I guess that trilogy can play out like a weekend bender where it's like, it's great, it's great. And then the third one, it's like, it's a hangover, right? Yeah, it was kind of like, I think we could have, uh, now I think I've gone back. What's what's interesting about that is the only film that I've gone back and rewatched, um, I would say to try and uh, underline or grasp a hold of an understanding of what I thought about this trilogy was the third one because... The one and two, it's like they stick in my mind, no problem with it. But I'm like, did I really have a problem with the third one? Or was it because I watched all three in a weekend? And yeah, and to be honest, going back and rewatching, I enjoyed it more and I, I got it more. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, I think it's even come out in recent months that there's, um, isn't Coppola preparing or maybe he's already released it. There's a, there's a, there's another cut. Yeah. being banded about about that film and I'm interested to see that too. So yeah, I mean, I think the first two films imprinted themselves enough um for yeah i mean let, tell me everything you can about <laughs> about this franchise because uh, you know they they pull you in with the first mm-hmm. film and then the second film you're like what so we got al pacino and robert <laughs> de niro and he's just like in the same family it was like brilliant you know it's what what a draw yeah and i think the kind of like yeah so the cut you're talking about uh it's called the the death of mark Mar- uh michael corleone it's already That's out it. i've i haven't i haven't i haven't tracked it down quite yet i've got to kind of hold off until i'm going to approach that film to kind of like dive into both versions and do like a kind of comparison on them but i think if that film wasn't so poorly received in a way i'm not sure how you look at it like a kind of butterfly effect scenario that if sophia coppola didn't have such a hard time as a result of that film kind of like critically lambasted and kind of publicly like everyone going she's terrible she's terrible her life could have been vastly different, and she, she might not be made the, making these great films. Yeah, you're right. And and she could have, I don't know, she could have been dating somebody else. She might not have met a kind of a guy who was directing music videos and skateboard videos that was Spike Jones, the kind of the guy, yeah, the the director of being John Malkovich. So, um, when was the, or what would have been the first Spike Jones film you would have seen? Um, well, I mean, I think the, um, I, I guess it's probably this cause I mean, I, well, no, technically it would have been badass cause you know, I think, uh, given my age, I, I really, got, I, I, I was very much, uh, it was like, what are these guys doing? I don't think I got into the films of badass. I was in a badass when it was on, was it MTV? I think it was MTV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It? Uh, so I was into it when it was on, when, 
because that was kind of MTV making its foray into, hey, we're not just going to play music anymore to we're not going to play any music. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it was something that was decent. That and the, the retro look back to the 80s were what you went to MTV for. So I, obviously that's probably technically the first exposure to him. But no, I guess it would be this film. Um, but it's because I, you know, I, I had a quick look into his his back catalogue before chatting to you uh, now, and yeah, I, I, I think for me, the, the, his films all stand out. You know, adaptation is one that I was just like, what was going on? I was, you know, it's <laughs> like, but a great, really, a really film of like a film within a film about a film within a film and about making a film, very fourth wall breaking. But no, recently, uh, her that that that's a film that I. I think it was very current, very trendy. And I'm, as George might have alluded to, we're very much into our, you know, we, we are a retro looking mm -hmm. podcast, but I'm very much into my sci-fi. And so I love the portrayal of the future and how it was subtle and, and how it became a much more, it could have gone many different ways, but it was a very philosophical film. It's like, well, what would, what would you do if you had this, if you had yeah. Scarlett Johansson <laughs> organizing your life <laughs> um so yeah no i so this i guess technically it is is, is isn't it is, i think it's his first film so yeah, yeah but no he's done some you'd have to re remind me the other films so this i mean to answer your question this would be the first uh, other but i did watch i did watch badass when it was on on mtv and enjoyed it who doesn't enjoy watching a midget get hit in the nuts with a catapult you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah no this would have been his directorial debut yeah so it would have been this then adaptation and then I think there might be a bit of a gap when then uh, where the wild things are, like Spike Jones. Yeah, Spike, yeah, Spike Jones, uh, an interesting guy, and uh, obviously a lot of people would have knowing or not his music videos from the nineties. So like the the Praise You video uh, for Fatboy Slim. Uh, yeah, that, he did that, some work for Daft Punk as well. Yeah, so yeah, he did Defunk, that amazing. Like I remember uh, as a kid, we had uh, a satellite dish, but we picked up German Sky for some reason. And I remember, like, they loved Daft Punk. And that, that video of, for anyone who hasn't seen it, who's listening, it's like a guy in, like, a dog costume just, like, going around a grocery store. But then it's really weird. The song is just playing in the background, and it's kind of like there is still dialogue over the top. So it's like the Daft Punk song is scoring a, a, a film or something. Yeah, so it's like... And there's an amazing DVD. And I think, like, <laughs> I, I, I look back on it as being, like, it was YouTube before YouTube. There's uh like they're called the director's collection. And uh, there was one for Chris Cunningham, uh, Michelle Gondry one. And there's a uh, Spike Jones one, which is a collection of like music videos he did. So whether it's like the Beastie Boys and um, Notorious B.I.G. And it's just these amazing like, yeah, video collections. I remember being like 13, 14 years old, just being around friends' houses. And we're just kind of like, go through all these like watch these videos and absolutely like fawn over them and just be like yeah that was our kind of like prepping ourselves for like a night out or kind of like hanging out or whatever well that was very much the pre-youtube and and you made me think of this when when to go back you know this 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 moment you know 1999 uh i never forget that you know it was, first, it was first year of uni for me and um it was like to put it in perspective i bought the matrix on VHS and then on DVD. That was the world that, that a movie lover lived in. But this thing you talked about pre-YouTube is something that George and I talk a lot where 
what DVD opened up was this fact that there was none of that annoying fast forwarding business that you could come back from the pub or pre-pub and say, should we watch the opening scene of this or the, yeah. or should we watch that or should we watch this? And, you know, lo and behold, YouTube does that now. Um, but we were kind of, you know, we were, we were uh, that was, that was where we were getting our fix as movie lovers. The fact that you could just jump through a film, watch certain elements of it. Unfortunately, however, I think, as we both know, a film like this has to be watched in one sitting. You know, it's it's that at least on the first go. Yeah. So, how would you have first seen this film? Would you would you have seen it in DVD? DVD. Yeah. You know, it was it was. But that's just because I was. uh, Well, I I would say that uh, because it wasn't until second year we had this thing where a local because I was a student in Edinburgh. There was a local cinema. I did that thing where you paid twenty quid a month for unlimited cinema, and I saw everything for that for that year but this came out the year before but I was in a DVD buying frenzy so I definitely saw this um as you will have heard talking to my brother George we've both been into our films and he's the one who would consume the movie industry knowledge he would have told me about this film he said Charlie there's this nuts film coming out you know I was like what and when when you explain the concept of this on the backdrop of um films you know the fact the fact that what John Markovitch yes the guy from Conair. Okay, we're going into his mind uh, with John Cusack. It's like, I'm on board, you know? So it was one of those um, things and it still stands up to this day as that, as, that, as that type of film. So yeah, it was it was a DVD. I can't say that I rushed out and bought the DVD, but it was consumed on DVD. But back then we were all buying DVDs and we were going over to each other's houses. We were we were still in the in the case of lending them, but it would have been with a bunch of mates, you know, 18, 18 to 22, whatever. We sat around and watched this and we're just like, wow, <laughs> this guy's nuts. Yeah, well, I don't think it's like, um, like it was, it was obviously well received by critics and stuff like that because it's a, it's a kind of like, I d- yeah, it's, it's a once in a life. Oh, it was no blockbuster. Film. It was no blockbuster. I, no, I mean, but it, it was one of those films that you heard about. Yeah, it definitely washed it. Fa- it washed its face. So, thirteen million dollars and uh, like box office return of thirty two point four million dollars. So, like, that's decent for like this this kind of film at least. And I guess a lot of it, and it's kind of like its popularity and everything would have would have come from word of mouth like you were saying it would have been people going you've got to see this film you've got john cusack <laughs> john malkovich and it's like you've got people in that you got cameron diaz as like at that time would have been like groundbreaking it's like you remember her from the mask look at her here she's playing this it, kind of frizzy it, she's plain plain jane <laughs> yeah yeah it's kind of, but like such like uh, she's got such weird like this beauty and pathos to her character and it's that uh, kind of the way i look at it now would be like when you see an adam sandler doing uncut gems and everyone's like wow i never didn't knew know he had it. it yeah 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 exactly yeah. and kind of um but yeah she like she's perfect for it and i think it's it's this kind of weird perfect storm of a film um yeah lightning in a bowl very much it was and also at this time you know i was talked about 99 you say 99 to me and i just think um matrix but that's like very much cerebral you know reality-based film is it all a dream and then you've got this and i think strange days was it was that 97 or was around a similar sort of time but these sort of films were obviously we were of the age where we were you know, sitting around discussing philosophical things over a few beers and whatever else. So, you know, very much mind-transporting films. But it was, um, I think that's why this film got traction. It was like, have you have you heard about this concept? It's like, so it's called being John Malkovich. 
and it's about being John Malkovich. And he's in on it. It's not so, but my point on that is it's not somebody pretending to be him. You know, it's it's not uh, which which obviously wouldn't have worked, but uh, it does work with 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 him being so on board. So off the back of that, would you mind kind of giving everyone a rundown of the synopsis of this film? How would you how would you kind of lead us into it? Well, yeah, I think it starts off as a quirky, and I'm sure it's obviously there's links to in in the family of of the the Wes Anderson uh, type of films. It starts off with that sort of quirky. This is a strange type film, and he goes, you know, you've got this thing where it's there's this couple and he goes to work in this strange place with the low ceiling. And then very quickly you understand that it's about this guy who's, who's, who's married and he falls in love with another woman. And then he discovers a portal into the, the mind of John Markovich. And through that, um, that actually causes his, his wife to fall in love with the, the person that he wants to fall in love with. But it would be, it'd be very hard to explain this without people being, people being aware of, of this, this. So how does, how does he go into his head? Well, it's a portal. It's a physical thing. Mm-hmm. He discovers it behind a filing cabinet and basically he opens the door and he's transported into the head of a celebrity, John Malkovich and hilarity and mayhem ensues. And I think if anybody hadn't seen the film, I wouldn't want to spoil it, but obviously things go awry. Um, <laughs> but in terms of a, a synopsis, I think there's there's two things going on. There's there's what you see is happening. Uh, there's what you don't know. And then I think it, the uh, the other thing worth mentioning is that we it is explained to us in the second act why uh, there is yeah. this portal uh, into John Malkovich. And that is a different group of people. And obviously they both... that. Um, the John Cusack character, this this weird love triangle that's been going on, they've been abusing the portal and they come to a head with the people who've actually got plans for it. Um, and yeah, and then, yeah, it all, it all goes completely nuts with um, Charlie Sheen having no hair in, in the last <laughs> act. So um, yeah, I, th- I think there's so much to be said about this film. In terms of a synopsis, I think most people would say it's about, it's about a love triangle. your own thoughts in your head and what would it be like if somebody was to take over your mind um but i think some people like as you mentioned before with cameron diaz and i think something has to be said about both Catherine keena and john Cusack. the oh, performance yeah. is put in and uh the egg on the face that john malkovich is willing to to put up with is what i think the character performances that we were spoiled with you know during these times of late 80s and 90s where I think I think John Cusack's quote is saying, "Just give me the most batshit crazy script yeah. that's going," and that's how he got this gig. And he just he's he's I think he's having a great time. And I think well, arguably it's even more than that with John Malco uh, with John Cusack. It's like give me the film that like can't get made, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, we've got this," and then they're like, "He's like, no, 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 no. I want I want like the thing that you're like this is never going to get made," and they're like, "Oh, you mean?" being John Malkovich I like the idea that it was this kind of like industry it was like a thing do you know what I mean it's like oh the being like everyone kind of knew and it kind of it's, it's a perfect way to kind of go back to the inception of it that Charlie Kaufman the writer of this film uh, wrote it with no intention of it getting made right he he had this thing where he was like 
I'm just going to write the most batshit film I can think about. And hopefully it will prick the ears of enough people in Hollywood that people will actually get me to write scripts for them. And it happened to fall in the lap of Francis Ford Coppola, who at the time was pitched to direct this. And I can only think of what what a disappointment that would have been. Like, no no offence to Francis Ford Coppola, but I think by... It's 19- not his type of film. <laughs> but by 1999 as well, it's kind of like he had, he had very much like passed over the hill and just kind of like, do you know what I mean? Like early 90s, he's, he'd given us Jack. Yeah, in more ways than one. But no, he um, <laughs> he definitely he definitely did what he what what a man of his age at that time could do was he greased the wheels of motions. He I think he he told John Malkovich, no, no, you should you should really take a look at this because as you've probably you know seen with because um, I mean who do you go to when when you're looking at critique of this film? All the critics loved it. But I tell you, the, the one person I was most interested to hear about what they thought of the film was John Markovich. Mm-hmm. And I just love this story about him going, well, I, I love the idea. And then me and my producer went to them and said, we'd like to direct and produce, but could we get another actor? And they're like, no, nope. yeah. <laughs> it's you or it's not happening. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And that, that I think I've seen the same interview as you. It's this great, like, Malkovich or Malkovich, right? You can find it quite easily on YouTube. It's like a 27 minute video. But some of the things he says in that, it's like really interesting. And like his kind of his view on the film. And he says early on as well, when he got like a second draft of the script, uh, Charlie Kaufman had taken out like a lot of the a lot of the meaner jokes and it said Oh, this is where he was saying, No, no, go go to town. Go yeah, to this yeah. is what I mean about the egg on the face. And I think you couldn't do it with because I think I read somewhere that there was the studios were saying, could we not do this with somebody more bankable, somebody like Brad Pitt or Tom Cruise? And you couldn't do. I don't think they would do to themselves what Malkovich is is happy to do. And what I love about this film is that you get it's his range. I mean, I don't know if now is a good time to talk about it, but there's obviously the scene where there's 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 many of him. Um, but just the fact that he's having to portray different people inside yeah. his head. And then we're getting to see fully blown how he is in real life, even though that's most likely a character, a characterization of how he thinks the world views him. And yeah, in that same interview that I think we both watched that he was, and let's take ourselves back to the nineties. He was like, yeah, you know, people, people were going to films uh, to pass the time, then they would go to films because they love the actors, and now today in the 90s, they are wanting to go to the films to live these experiences. They're, they're expecting the actors to provide these experiences for them, so what's the next step? Do you want to get into my head and be me for 15 minutes? So I, I love the fact that that, that that they were all on board for this cerebral project. They're like, yeah, and it is. I, I use the word experiment. I think um, this film, there's nothing like it. You know, it's so... It's it's not fourth wall breaking. It's kind of like we're just going to put windows through the fourth wall and we're going to jump in and out of them throughout the film. It's um, it's it's. I can't think of nothing springs to mind immediately that is similar to this. I can't think of apart from funnily enough adaptation. <laughs> so I, I can't think of another film that's playing on the fact that it's a film and that it's a story and that the story is the story. So yeah, I think. Um, the, the small amount of films that that uh, Spike Jones has done, but the quality of them speaks volumes. 
I think what's quite interesting is like a lot of the themes and a lot of the areas that are explored in this film are kind of like then expanded upon in Charlie Kaufman's later work. And it's that kind of, if you look at something like Synecdoche, New York, when he's kind of like really going to town about that, that idea of perfection and what like a creative does. And just throughout his career, it's that kind of thing of uh, like, yeah, what the, what the creator does to get their art where it needs to be. Or it's that thing of exploring the consciousness with uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and like kind of like revisiting someone's past memories and stuff like that. And there's that like sequence in this film where they kind of uh, Lottie and Maxine. Oh, they're in the subconscious. And they travel in fruit. And like even the way that's kind of like amazingly like put together by Spike Jones, that kind of like almost like pre-inception inception like kind of like weird yeah. geography of it where like they're crawling through an air vent and they're coming through the sunroof of a of a bus and oh yeah the axis the axis is changing it's going vertical horizontal and all that but i mean that is it's i don't know how to pronounce that film sinoki wow i remember that film i mean that that film because it's it's about death isn't it it's about and i'll never forget especially since this passing that line from philip seymour hoffman is that we all try to distract ourselves from the fact that we are hurtling towards this point in time where we will pass and then obviously you know what what happened with him very sad very talented actor but that whole film is about that and then it's quite ironic and you know, the same thing with Eternal uh, Sunshine and Spotless Mind. These films stick in your head. Once again, you could argue glory days. I think we were very much spoiled from late 80s till, I mean, I'm, I'm nitpicking here, but till early noughties. I think we had, if you look at the films that came out mm -hmm. during that period and you look at the films that have come out during a similar period since, I don't think, I don't think, I mean, maybe the industry's changed and it's got more cash centric and brand recognition and stuff, but we were spoiled during this time. I think from, <laughs> I think from 89 till 2000 and early noughties, I think we had so many great films. Yeah. So like with this film, I like one of the things I wanted to talk about was that the idea of like the pu like puppets. So obviously Craig, yeah. Craig or Craig, as they call him in the <laughs> film, uh, is yeah, is a puppeteer. You're never sure if it's if it's Greg or Craig until yeah. you've listened. Because I think the only person who pronounces it well is Cameron Diaz. Everyone else, it sounds like Greg, but she's like Craig. <laughs> yeah, that is the thing, and like uh, I think it's only from like looking through the IMDb cast list that I was like, oh, it's Craig. It is. It's Craig. definitely Craig. We're we're um, sure on that. So he's this kind of like grubby. I don't know, like, if, if he wasn't married, would definitely be an incel. And it's kind of like, that's the way he looks at his, like, puppeting career. Like, why won't anyone give me a job? And he does this, like, <laughs> he's he's there in his kind of workshop, always always tinkering away with his, his stuff. But I think for, yeah, for John Cusack at this time, like, it's a big, again, it's a big risk. So what, two years earlier, he would have been in Con Air with John Malkovich. And it's like... I don't know, like, for me... Well, for me, just to... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, it's one of the, like... It's one of the last great, like, John Cusack performances. I think, like, that there's a couple since, like, uh, High Fidelity and Love and Mercy, but that is, like, the kind of one where it's like, wow, like, what, like, he's doing something wildly off the beaten path in that film. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, you mentioned the film that links this all together because I look at John Cusack in being John Malkovich and I I can't help but think, did, did Nicolas Cage and Malkovich rub off on him during Con Air? And I get the feeling that this performance was like, I could do nuts, I could completely change myself and I could deliver it. And I get the feeling that this was maybe he did it and maybe he didn't enjoy it. Or maybe he didn't like the reception of it and he decided not to do it again. Because I think High Fidelity came after this and that was very much more him back in his wheelhouse doing what, you know, his, his comfort zone. But um, I, I don't know, when I look at this performance and being dramatic, I see a lot of Cage. And this is a Caged in podcast. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that unhinged, that unhinged is sort of like, the, when he just loses his stuff and he just looks like, um, I don't know, it's it's just nuts. You know, it is that very shamanic sort of thing he's in his zone and nobody understands how complicated he is and uh nobody understands puppeteering like him even though nobody really not that many people care <laughs> you know so um yeah I, I i don't know i think i think it's it, it's a broad stroke to say that the the working with malkovich and cage affected him but i do see the fact that malkovich is in this film and the fact i see a lot of cage in his performance the, the thing the thing I would have loved with this film, because I know that uh, originally the uh, Charlie Sheen cameo was written for Kevin Bacon. The only thing that could like make this like even better for me. A little bit of cage. If that was cage, <laughs> like that in my head. That Which role? Oh, oh, that was the, as the buddy. Yeah, as, that would work. As the Charlie Sheen character. <laughs> he's the only other person I could kind of see like fitting into that role where it's like, because you could kind of see him like, whoa, whoa, man, lesbian lesbian witches like and like especially Charlie. you can eat you can eat that bagel yeah that is, and it's nick it's nick cage playing himself um but which nick cage is he playing so yeah man do it um yeah so yeah and i want on on the thing carrying on the conversation on john, john cusack i love the fact that he plays pathetic like in this film do you know what i mean like a lot of the like pretty much from moment one he's just this kind of sad sack pathetic loser and like he kind of like and it's again like not to be like oh like actors like it's really brave because it's not brave but obviously like it's an industry that's like based on image and stuff like that and it's like that thing of like i don't know like the fact that he goes to that place of just being like I'm going to play like a real, he's a weasel, isn't he? Like the kind of first exchanges he has. With Snively. Him. Yeah. A hissable. You, you like what, you know, the fact that he ends up trapped in a child's mind at the end of the film <laughs> seems rather, seems rather fitting. But I think um, we covered um, gross point blank in the last year on our, on our podcast. Yeah. And that's another John Cusack. And I think, I think, and I don't, I can't, I'm not, not speaking for John Cusack. I think he got a bit fed up with the the industry i think he has an amazing range he did maybe it was maybe it was this juncture in films where we started moving in different directions but if you look at the films he made in the 90s um the big high grossing films gross point blank con air this um i don't know something happened i, th I think something happened because if you, they're all strong performances that he's a bankable star um, and then I think the last thing I remember him doing, was it The Raven? I, 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 I don't know what he's, what have you done for me lately, John? But <laughs> I think his his performance in this compared to Conair, compared to Gross Point Blank, you seem, it's almost like looking at three different people. Yeah. And I just, part of me thinks that maybe he, maybe he got the, he didn't like the playing monkey thing. He was like, well, okay, you know, I've, I've done this and I've done that. And 
and I'm not getting the credit. I don't know, but he does. He does put in so much effort in this film, and I mean, everyone in this is um, is really it's, it's a high bar, I would say. So obviously, this film like is a is a comedy, right? But like, how how do you like? I don't know. Do you find it like? It's, how do you find the comedy in this? Well, I think it's important to keep reminding yourself that this is a comedy because <laughs> there's some very dark moments that I think the the, the moment where I felt most uncomfortable because it's, as you mentioned before, he's quite pathetic. They've got this weird thing. They're obsessed. They've got loads of pets. Um, John, John Markovich is kind of like an extras thing of like what he's actually doing in his life in the first early parts when they go into his head. And uh, Catherine Keener's character, Maxine, is very uh, cutthroat, seeing an opportunity. But the scene that kind of stands out for me, yeah, it's comedy, um, is that bit where he's locking up uh, Lottie, you know, and it's quite dark. You know, he's got yeah. the gun and and it's it's a very sort of Cohen, Coheny Brothers, Wes Anderson sort of kidnap. I've got the gun, I'm going to shoot you, but I'm going to tie you up in a really uncomfortable, clumsy way. So you're constantly reminded that she's not really a threat, but you're also watching him lock up his wife in a monkey's cage so he can take on he can go into somebody else's head to have sex with the person she's in love with. That's dark, man. That's yeah. twisted. It's um, So yeah, it's a comedy. Um, but I think it's just as, I mean, the whole film, the whole concept is out there, but th- I think that, that that's quite a dark moment. Well, it's, um, it's tonally dark and it, in moments it is like, it takes a risk in being like literally dark as well. So like the cinematography in this by, Lance Accord has just got this thing of like it's not afraid to like be dark you know like obviously a lot of like uh, yeah. But yeah it's not well lit it's very sepia it's very uh yeah, pastely colors the costume designer got a note on one of the award sessions it was like all it's kind of brown and gray <laughs> you know everything's kind of brown gray and yellow uh so yeah yeah totally yeah it's not afraid to kind of go to that place of just being like this isn't like this I don't know that, yeah, this isn't feel good. It's this kind of like what what they are doing is because they're not apart from Lottie. Like when you when you're introduced to Craig, it's like he's not that he's not a likable guy. Do you know what I mean? He's like no. kind of you you get him yeah you get him in the basement doing his puppetry. You get him on the street doing puppetry, and it's almost like he's he, he rightfully gets punched because he's kind of doing this like weirdly perverted play on the new york streets and kind of, and that's the thing like it's got this beauty but at the same time it's got this beauty to it like pu- like i've i i don't know puppets are inherently quite creepy anyway but like there is this kind of like lifelike beauty to them and obviously like the way they are manipulated in this film is like the puppet there's some great scenes of puppetry in this i think um it, it gets its it gets its uh, moment in the sun if you want to talk about puppeteering as a whole because yeah we all we all put it you know in the same probably you know mad box of frogs as mime you know like okay yeah you want to do that on the street and earn money fair enough that's that's your thing <laughs> and it does take skill it does take practice but what you do see in this film is pretty cool and um, it's very emotive but you couldn't watch an entire film of that and then the running joke in the third act is. Um, I love that scene with <laughs> Mark when Malkovich is when Craig is Malkovich and he's berating somebody on. It's like you, he's crying, but, but you're not crying. Yeah, you're yeah. not. You're not doing it. Up. So it's like you're not taking. I just I've got a real problem that I don't think the world is taking puppeteering seriously enough. <laughs> it's like okay, that feels like a perfect time to talk about like uh, jo- like 
yeah, you said about John Malkovich's reign. It's a perfect time to talk about the fact that at, wow. that, at that moment, he is playing essentially John Cusack playing Craig. Like, yeah. When, in that. And it's like when, yeah, obviously once he realized they could, wouldn't change the actor, he was like, he says, yeah, he says, I, I had to step away from like what this film is about because it's about the perception of me and not really about yes me, me as such so i can like i have to but like yeah the the way he like he looks like somebody is in, inside of him like it's almost like the, the only thing i can really compare it to is uh vincent d'onofrio in men in black you know like when it's that that alien trapped inside and, but obviously like the skins will tighten that but it almost like has that effect of it because he's like kind of i don't know especially at the beginning with like when he does the uh dance of despair and disillusion uh and like that that whole moment where he's like transforming almost into craig he he perfectly does those like great like contortions and there's that scene near the end where he's like he's like he captured a glimpse of himself in the mirror after like eight months or whatever he's like i'm free i'm free and as the kind of like weird cultists or we're like leading into all take over his consciousness. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like he's like there in the hallway, just kind of rattling around, like it all like all, all consuming in him. But yeah, like I think I yeah, John Mal like Matt, yeah, Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. He's just like it's it's one of those things. Like why why was he not nominated for an Oscar? For like, do you know what I mean like for this? For, for, this film well i think the the other question is um why was he chosen and i think when you watch this film you, you understand why you understand why because of the roles he's played he's been in a lot of different things and i think there's there's a moment when uh when i think yeah he comes it's when him and craig are on the freeway at the turnpike and he's like, it's my head. You know, it's like, I discovered the portal. And it's, it's just like, I love this conversation. It's that, I think, I think Malkovich had a lot to do with that. And I think it's kind of like, it's my, I've got my life that I am a person. I am an actor. And you fans, public, you resonate this, this other version of me, you know, and that's the bit of me that you want. But what you don't realize is that what comes with that is my my normal life. So on two sides, I think there's this, I think that's the point that Malkovich wants made. In, okay, if I'm going to make this film, then I'm going to get my point across. Or I could, or maybe that was the point of Charlie Kaufman. He's like, if it's going to be like that, then this is my interpretation of that. But, and then on the more cynical you side, it's like, hey, I can go nuts here. I'm getting to play four different people playing me. I get to show my range. And let, uh, we we talked about this recently. You know, there's, there's certain, on our, on our last episode, there's certain actors that pop up that are true thesps. I mean, there's the easy ones where you say, oh, well, you know, there's, there's Sean Connery. Um, but there's the less unheard of is the fact that they take it very seriously. That at the end of the day, they, and I'm, and I'm really happy about seeing that scene of him playing Richard III, where for them, they're making movies because that's where the industry is. But for them, it's all about the performance. It's, I think in the film, he's ref, uh, the, the weird doctor guy, Lester, refers him to him as the performer. He doesn't call him the actor, John Malkovich. He calls him the performer. And that, I think, is how true thespian actors uh, view themselves. You know, the Alan Rickmans, the, uh, there's too many to list. But, you know, you, we know there's some people who are in it for the money. And there's some who would, if they can't get a film, they'll go on the stage. 
And so, yeah, I think he was perfect for this role. And I think even he realised that by the end of it. So what about Catherine Keener in this? Because I think she plays like this amazing, I don't know, it's almost like she she toes the line perfectly between like being like a, a, a vixen, like a femme fatale, and manages to, I don't know, Keep... Completely believable, lovable relationship with Lottie as well. Yeah, and that that that's one thing I've really wanted to talk about in this film. It's like it's for a film made in nineteen ninety nine on its kind of like gender politics and stuff like that, and the, in, in in the way it kind of deals with like uh, trans, yeah, like uh, a, a transgender like uh, plotline and like uh, LGBTQ, like it's it's really progressive. Like that whole and, and the fact that it brings up those questions of of Lottie thinking that she may be transgender because she had this kind of experience inside of John Malkovich's body and re- like realized that is how she like kind of feels inside of herself and it's like what other films were doing that like well what other films were doing that like five ten years later do you know what I mean like let alone at the time oh no there was Hollywood takes a long time to catch up and this was very avant-garde but yeah I think um in terms of her character one yeah I mean as you say she could have easily made she would have been a killer Bond girl there's there's something about her um just to her allure it's just it's it's amazing but she I think I read somewhere that she didn't like her character. She didn't like the character she was playing, but she does it so well, and it seems multifaceted. And yeah, I think you know before we were even labeling it as gender, this was this this was happening before we were even talking about gender politics. And and it's because I guess it just shows the scope of mind of of Kaufman and Jones. They're like, okay, so if we're going to be having like anybody off the people queuing up which you see in this film, paying money to go, there's going to be men, there's going to be women. And so what's the experience? And what does that mean if you're that person? Um, and that's argued, you know, we see uh, Craig taking over Malkovich and that puppeting thing coming in. But just for those people who go in for the 15 minutes and come out, you know, whether they are male, female, you know, uh, straight or gay, whatever, you know, it, it or, or binary, whatever, it doesn't make any difference. But they were, you, you're exactly right. They were having this conversation um much much before much a long time before we were having it today so um yeah very very forward thinking but i think she's great and you can see where i think she's actually quite kind to craig uh maxine's character considering you know what what he's trying to do you know there's the unrequited side but she sees the business opportunity she could be she could have completely cut him out from day one and just run with it it's interesting that she she keeps him on you know Mm -hmm. um yeah, but, uh, there's an amazing line like uh, I wanted to mention, and it's kind of like it's Craig's philosophy on on puppets, and he says it's about being in someone else's skin, seeing what they see, feeling how they feel, and I feel like that line is a, a, a kind of sums up like what his motivations are in this. It's kind of like post yeah. post first like Malkovich experience and. To, to your point about the people queuing up to be in Malkovich, I've, what is quite interesting watching this again is it's when you see that like uh, the corridor of all the guy like the people lined up, they're all men, and I, I'd like I feel like that kind of like it kind of very much speaks to that I don't know like insular, lonely guys. Do you know what I mean like those kind of like yeah. and and you get that moment with that 
with that guy because their 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 ad just reads like ever thought about being somebody it's very vague and then people come along and that there's that guy who kind of was like they're like well you get to be John Malkovich and he's like well it's my second choice and he's like I'm fat and they're like it's gonna be two hundred bucks and he's like oh yeah okay and like, and like <laughs> comes out and. That's the comedy. That's the comedy. Those sort of lines. Well, well, the comedy in this as well is like from like Doctor Lester and his um, his receptionist or what does he call her? He calls her like an executive. Uh, it's like like uh, something. Do you know what I mean? Like one of those a, a term I don't like like when you say like I'm a cleaner and someone goes no no they're a, they're a hygiene technician hygiene um, specialist yes, yeah, yeah hygiene yeah. technician yeah yes yeah, and like all, all all those kind of moments in that seventh and a half floor and i'm not sure if you picked up on this when we're introduced to the seventh and the half floor uh there's a cameo by octavia spencer as the lady in the lift with craig the one who kind i of... was yeah, yeah and she shows him how it's done um yeah I, I i didn't i didn't recognize it um but no I, I think that whole scene the whole thing about the load ceiling for me it screams where's anderson it's like yeah we all work here the ceiling's like lower than than your neck and that's normal and we all just get on with it <laughs> well because you get that video right that kind of explains what it's all about that very bizarre like the guy who the merton uh Clemmer, the guy who built the building had this uh, the video explains it in a very kind of quick way of of a yeah of a small person came into his office and then said like I've never found an office that would that suit uh, a place to work that would suit me, and he, he proposes to her, and then he's like, "You will, you and your kind, you and your wretched kind." I think he says, "Will <laughs> never have to, will never have to worry again." And um, it makes sense for short people to get another floor in. Why not? <laughs> it's it's a it's a bizarre one as well because this film takes a good like half hour before it gets into the like the Malkovich stuff because at the beginning you just think it's this kind of like situational film about this kind of sag sack yeah where's it going yeah yeah yeah. and it's like that kind of thing like oh so yeah he's, is it going to be like an office-based comedy where it's like this guy trying to like i don't know live like yeah live his life and try and get by in this weird office and the kind of comings and goings and then that kind of that when he crawls into that tunnel it's like fucking hell like this has gone somewhere like the first, I remember the first time seeing that this film, I was like, "What? What the actual fuck is going on?" Yeah, it's and it does. Obviously, you've got the title, you've got the um, you've got the posters. Everyone had an inkling, but just when it's just like, so hang on, it's a door behind a filing cabinet in this weird floor, and and then he's there, and it's only for fifteen minutes, and then you turn up in New Jersey, and it's like all of these things you like. And then they turn it into like a theme park ride. And it's like, because why? Because capitalism, baby. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's a lot of themes going on here. But yeah, that first instant where you're like, how how did this you, you, there's a lot of head scratching going on? You're like, so so okay, so in this film, people are Malkovich, okay. Where's that gonna go? And I think this film crosses every, you know, crosses all the T's in terms of where you could go and what it could mean. 
And I, but I don't think it would have worked without the subplot of the um, of Lester and his people. The fact that there's there's a reason. I, I love the fact that they put because it could have been uh, probably more along the lines of adaptation. It could have been left completely ambiguous that nobody knows where the door comes from, and it could have been just about this story where Craig takes over and what happens. It, it could have just been that. But the fact there's this if you like, this uh, this other arc going on, I think that adds a certain gravitas. So, yeah, what is what is the reveal? What is the grand plan for this tunnel? Uh, well, now you're getting into some sort of... It's the, When they start talking about vessels, I'm reminded of Donnie Darko. So, yeah, so... <laughs> These uh, there is there is a bit of confusion on my side in that these all these people they they go into Malkovich, and they've been doing that on other cycles and as vessels. Um, but yeah, so the whole idea is that they need to get into Malkovich before he's forty-four. Well, yeah. So uh, he explains it that he's not Lester; he is Merton Clemmer, the guy who founded that building, and he has been. Yeah. He says it was him. It's just him, but because he's so lonely in the vessel, he's now collected, collecting his friends to come in the vessel with him. So I think this is the first, like, mass exodus uh, of right. people. Uh, okay, okay. So it is It is just, okay, so it's just he's he's inhibited. But it's, it's kind of not explained because by the end of the film, it's like we understand the link is with the spawn, you know, the, the fact that Emily is the next one because it was conceived via Malkovich. So... It's like, is Lester Malkovich's dad? No, I mean, that question did cross my mind. Yeah, at one that, point. Is, that is, yeah, that is bizarre how that, how, where that link comes from. I think, I think, you, I think it's like, don't worry about it. I think there's certain, I think, I think what you're shown in this film is what you should focus on. There's a lot of science and metaphysics you could go into and reality and uh, multi dimensional stuff that you could chat about, but maybe just focus on what's thrown at you. Well, what is interesting is that this isn't the uh, initial ending that was planned. I I am aware of the, uh, the 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 other ending. The other ending sounded, and that very much sounds like uh, the ending of a script that had no intention of ever getting made. Because it's kind of like you. When you go for the devil as the bad guy, you are reaching. Uh, yeah, it's the devil as the bad guy. It's. <laughs> The, the character who we kind of get a glimpse of at the beginning, the, uh, Martini, the kind of ro- like the guy who's who is the, the rock star guy. puppeteer. Yeah. yeah, who's kind of doing that thing off the Golden Gate Bridge and stuff like that. Like when he's the villain and there's kind of, uh, who is it? Henry S. Truman, like a puppet verse and then turns into a massive swan. And then we get this realization that uh, Clemmer and his people, when they've gone into the, when they've gone into the vessel, they kind of, it turns into the devil and they're, they're controlling. And this is all just to get Craig out. Yeah. And Lottie and Lottie never like joins up with them. She, she falls in love with Elijah, the monkey. And they, they like have a, have a relationship together and they now, they start planet of the apes together. Yeah. 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 Um... It kind of gets gets weird and post-apocalyptic then kind of has like, like a, it all turns out at the end, like when Craig's out, that you realise that it's not Craig. He's he's being controlled by Clemmer, and he's just he is a he's actually a puppet. And it's very like the the other ending sounds. And you can kind of see why they didn't go with it. <laughs> part of, part yeah yeah yeah. Part of me is like just just through sheer curiosity. I'm like, I 
kind of. Oh yeah, you want to see it? I want to see it, but at the same time, it's like I'm. I love the film that we've got, and um, I think it was Spike Jones who said like, well, "We're not going with that ending." And I think I think he made the right choice because the the kind of like the final act we get of this like kind of post um post the portrayal really isn't it when when craig inhabits seven years later sort of epilogue well no just like the moment from when lottie kind of in the rain goes and joins uh lester and his kind of uh band of merry pension all right like from there i think that's when it would have like gone to the no you're right that's that's when they start laying the tracks for how, how the film's going to end and i think for me it's much more circular film makes more sense lester makes more sense because otherwise i think for that alternate ending we were just discussing for that to work i think lester and the other actors in the Merton building would have had to have been more present in the film throughout than they had been so yeah i, I think it works and i think it it worked because it works, if you know what I mean. I think they made they obviously made the right decision. But I think it's a very George and I discuss many we've even got a feature on our podcast about suspicious spin-offs. Um, <laughs> you know, where we where we talk about the sequels that have been made and the sequels that should have been made. We do a coulda, woulda, shoulda, where we talk about the actors that we consider but didn't get the roles. And this alternate ending. I don't know. It stands out. I've heard some really, really bad deleted scenes, alternate endings <laughs> in my time on our on our podcast. And this, I actually, I can. There's a lot of thought gone into it. Is my point? You know, even though it is kind of, you know, let's make it the devil. You know, I, I think that's that's the kind of why they didn't go with it. Yeah, and um, so when we get to the yeah, when we kind of it transpires, they have to get into Malkovich by the end of his 44th birthday, which happens to be the night that his documentaries aired and he's kind of doing this uh, awe-inspiring puppet ballet. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about that documentary? Because I, I, I love that. I love it. I, I, like, I love it, yeah. I think I just, it's, it's one of those things, um, when you put a documentary like this in a film, it's normally at the beginning. It is typically at the beginning. It's exposition. You know, it's like we need to cover a lot of ground. We need to do it in a funny way. We need to get across a certain tonality and style. Let's do a documentary. You know, if you're not doing that, then you're going to do a montage. And it's sort of like, I lo- I just love the tongue-in-cheekness of it all. And it's like, it, and it ends with, you know, you just see, and it's telling that story. So what happens? So it's like we fast-forwarded, Craig's taken over, and he has gone to town. And it's just a very quick montage of what he's done and his, and his hair's, and he's becoming Craig, his hair's growing out. And as I mentioned earlier, that, that thing where he's telling other puppeteers how to puppeteer. Um, and it's like, and it's, and it's the voice. Who is, I think in some trivia, the voice is somebody famous who's doing the voiceover. It escapes me now. IMDB, I think. Um, I'm trying to remember. So, so the documentary um, is littered with uh, what with cameos. No, not appearances. It's the voice. It's the narrator. Yeah, 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 the guy yeah. narrating is. Uh, well, well, just, just, just while we find it, yeah, some of the other cameos that are that are that are in that section is so you get David Fincher as Christopher Bing, like one of the talking right. heads who talks about uh, him. You also get Sean Penn talking about like uh i think i'm thinking of fincher but yeah no i remember the sean penn and the, isn't i think brad pitt's in it at some point yeah well, brad, brad pitt's in the moment when um maxine's talking to the camera about like how great how great 
John Malkovich is. And then the kind of camera pans to uh, Brad Pitt, who's like looking like very confused and a bit like, what the fuck was that? And uh, you get you get glimpses of the the Hanson brothers as well. You get uh, Dustin. That's it, yeah, because they're, to- they're, they're, they're all these people who are talking about him. But for me, it timestamps this film. The fact that the guy accuses uh, the guy who accuses um, long haired Malkovich of being Malkovich is one of the terrorists from The Rock with Nicolas Cage. Um, he's one of you know he's the He's the guy who's getting a bit annoyed with Ed Harris towards the end. And, and there's, there's, a, there's another actor from The Rock in it. So, I mean, it's like 90s character actors. <laughs> if you were a 90s character actor of any standing, you were in this film. And so, yep, let's get Brad Pitt. Yep, let's get Sean Penn. Um, and I think that shows what they thought of this film because they wouldn't have agreed to do a cameo like that if they didn't, if they didn't believe in the production behind it. Yeah, and I I guess it's that thing as well that, like, this is, like, pre... Well, yeah, this would have been, like, the same year. It would have been in production way before Curb Your Enthusiasm. And it's kind of like, this is one of, like, I don't know, especially for that time. Obviously, it had been done in the past. But that thing of, like, people not taking, like, actors playing themselves, not taking themselves or, like, what's going on that seriously. And I think it's, I don't know, it all, it all adds into the fun. And that it's stuff like that that reminds you this is a comedy despite the kind of dark places it takes you to and it's like we were we were we were spoiled for black comedies yeah during i mean they were really getting uh they're really turning audiences during uh the the 90s and you mentioned before um did spike jones do ed tv no that was that that was john schwartzman who is Oh, so he's the other link. Another link to the couple of family. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That, that, that's what he was doing in 1999. Yeah, yeah. But it shows where the zeitgeist was at the time. This idea of, you know, we're going to make a TV show about your life, um, but it's got to be entertaining. So could you stop doing what you normally do and make it entertaining? So <laughs> I think I think it does. It, it is very much we were in this. It is the cusp of the Internet. Uh, you know, it's funny that the internet really didn't kick off till the year 2000, even though it was there, and the effect of it. But this was all of like, well, what could it be? Could it be your life on the screen? Could it be people watching your life? Um, so, yeah, these, these these sort of, I don't think we have those sort of conversations now. I don't, I don't, I don't, in film, I don't, I think we were, there were very interesting, mind bending, existential films, and there was existence around existence at the same time. These films were coming about because people like all of this technology, where's it going to lead us? I'm sure it'll be a good place. Um, So, yeah, great time, great, a great time for film. So, let's discuss the kind of, yeah, the way this this film wraps itself up before we kind of score this bad boy. Is, um, so we get that kidnap right we get the lester and his cronies taking taking maxine whilst <laughs> whilst he's been doing his big puppet pregnant show. pregnant maxine yes <laughs> yes and like i i i yeah and we we mentioned it earlier but that scene when because you'll see lottie says like and again a re, another really telling line is that when she says if i can't have you no one can when lottie's the one because obviously they have no plans to kill Maxine. They're kind of like, mm-hmm. I think when, when Craig Malkovich says to, to them, like, oh, we're going to like, we're going to kill, they, he calls their bluff and like Lester's there going like, oh, he just called our bluff. Like shit. Like yeah. what, what are we going to do? And then Lottie's fired up. And then we get that. Yeah. That, um, 
Because we get that, that crazy scenes that all the the, the subconscious of Malkovich. Well, um, yeah, because we get that explanation, right? Don't we? Because they're like, why can't we just go in anyway? And they're like, oh yeah, because he's in because Craig's in control. Craig's too powerful. We can't we can't all go in there. We'll be pushed to the subconscious. And it's really interesting what um, John Malkovich said about like when he was asked what like where those ideas of the subconscious came from, and it's. It's it's clear because it was asked, are they are they based on things that happened in your life? And it's like, well, no, they just very much play upon fears that we all have and kind of uh, things that can lead to neuroses and. Uh, no, no, I I, I I admitted to going to the laundry stack and sniffing women's underwear. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> that really happened. Yeah, no, no, definitely. There's definitely some dramatic license going on there, but. Once again, he's showing. Yeah, if you're going to make fun of me, let's let's do this because there's there's just a scene where he's sitting on a couch with a girl, and it's like maybe it's it makes you ask the question: Was it somebody who meant something to him? It's his younger years, and there's obviously the obvious things of him of him uh, being embarrassed at school, as you say, the things that we all worry about. But yeah, pre Inception, pre all the other mind boggling films that were to follow after it, this was very ahead of its time, and I think we both love the. Oh, the yeah. topsy turvy, the the camera work that's going on, quite experimental, I guess, well, at the time. Well, I guess it's that thing that it really it's a perfect way to capture what it would be like to go through the subconscious or kind of like go through dreams, like that thing like there's no beginning, there's no end. It kind of like when you have a dream, yeah. it's like you're just in the middle of it. Like you can't you can't say like, Oh yeah, like it started like this, no roll credits. It's just like bang, that happened, that happened, that happened. They Spike Jones manages to capture that in such like a, a, a fantastic visual way that it's like, yeah, that is that is kind of like what even ideas they kind of just like ping pong ping and, and ponging all over the place and it's yeah I think it it, it captures it captures that perfectly. Well, the, the the two things I didn't get, you know, the first time <laughs> round, because uh, I, I was like, when we go back and look at films from yesteryear, it's, it's important to don't give don't give old me too much credit. Um, is that I didn't realize? Um, well, I mean, now knowing Spike Jones's career, it's obvious this this uh, this scenes that we're talking about this uh, subconscious thing very music video of the time oh, you yeah. know there's this, this the camera spinning around and so yeah it looks great now and it looked great then but I, I just i don't know part of me just feels like yeah i think i've seen this in an rem video somewhere um the other the other thing that escaped me um was that at the very because we're talking about summing up um and we can talk about charlie sheen in a second but that last bit where you hear craig going maxine through the eyes of emily I didn't realize he was trapped. I thought he was just pathetic and he kept going back to the portal and he kept on spending 15 minutes just to see Maxine. I didn't get it until this time that it's that thing that Lester explains that he's trapped in there forever. And I didn't get that until uh, the recent viewing. So there you go. And I'm pretty sure that's been, that's been ripped off in a Black Mirror episode. Like or being trapped. Oh yeah, I mean they've covered it a few times. Like uh, well, they, whether they, it's the... they did that thing with the, like the teddy bear when you could put someone's conscience consciousness into like a teddy bear, and like that that essentially happens. Like somebody moves on with their life, and you've kind of got the consciousness of the uh, yeah the guys yeah, yeah inside of the teddy bear, and it kind of gets like left to the side or something like that. And it's like that like that. That's fucking. That's being John Malkovich, you bastards. It's like going like, let's take that bit of being John Malkovich and it like 
because yeah and it's basically like that's what the sequel would have been and it's like well that's just that just makes you feel bad that'd make you feel bad for like a the the whole running time of it um it's done in a very artistic way in this film. I yeah. think we're going to continue. I mean, uh, you've got Elon Musk uh, making monkeys play Pong. He wants to put things <laughs> in our brain. I think this conversation of what is the self, uh, what is your reality and all that. I mean, let's just talk about the self. It's going to come up again and again and again. But what I like about this film, looking back, it was done very artistically. There's not a lot of flashing knobs and like mind-blowing physics. It's like, <laughs> there's a door behind a filing cabinet. And <laughs> I do, because even, even Maxine's brain said, so could I be, like you're talking about that fat guy, could I be, it's like, you're John Markovich for 15 minutes. <laughs> it's like, they keep it simple. And some of the best, you know, um, it kind of reminded me, there's, there's certain films that do well, certain films want you to focus or be distracted by the complexity of how it happens. And others are like, no, there's a more, more important story to be told about the effect of it rather than how it happens. It's like, it's a portal, deal with it. You know, I, li- I like that about this film, it's very artistic. I, I, I like the, that scene we get as well when Craig, well, when Lottie and um, Maxine like escape John Malkovich's subconscious. They're they're spat out at the New Jersey Turnpike. You get that really tender moment when they kind of reconcile and um Maxine explains to Lottie that the baby It's your baby. It's your baby. It was a time when she was inside John Malkovich and you get that reconciliation and then it's She was inside John Malkovich, she was inside Maxine. (laughs) (laughs) And and then and then like Again, something I only picked up on this watch is when Craig is fine, like he finally decides to leave. Because again, this is all in a pathetic attempt to be with Maxine. Yeah, he has not given up. He's spat out onto the New Jersey Turnpike with that like piece of wood that he went in with the first time, and it's like I don't know why he's been spat out with it. I guess it's that thing of like that it must have been one of the 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 OAPs who was like take your fucking bit of wood as well uh, craig your piece of shit but like, I, excuse me what's the bit of wood uh i've forgotten about because I, I remember him having it at the end but when does he take that in with him is it uh... the the first ever time because when he's explain when he explains the whole thing to maxine he kind of like says like what is it what like <laughs> where's the wood gone what does that mean on a metaphysical level Ah, uh, so he goes in with a bit of wood. Okay. Yeah, I think it's like okay. a, a, something that, like, the, something that would have snapped off when he was like taking apart the, you know, like because there's like a bit of wood over the over the door over itself. The door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, yeah. So like, they've but, thought of everything. They've thought. <laughs> they've literally thought of everything. So yeah, he's got his bit of wood, and then obviously, yeah, because it's it explained that if it's after the forty fourth birthday you're trapped inside and that that final scene when it's at, at seven years later and they're at the pool again like we've got a lesbian couple like again very progressive for 1999 in a, a in, in a film um and then like yeah that kind of craig getting his just desserts being trapped and like because he even says like he's saying to him look away look away but obviously he has no control whatsoever and he's just tormented with the fact that he has to look at Maxine all the time well look at Maxine being in love with his ex-wife I mean it's a very good comeuppance and um it's just how pathetic his voice sounds he just sounds like a little kid and he's crying and as I say it totally went over my head the first time I was like 
he's well i'm just going to go back because he kind of says that in the scene before and yeah and then this time it's like oh he's that prisoner image that lester shows lottie he's that prisoner and he's not in control and then yes we get some more spike jones sort of music video i think the kid's swimming in the pool for a while i'm like what's going to happen what's going to happen okay but i guess that's what is trying to show you this is everything that um that craig's seeing um uh, but i do love uh, charlie sheen for putting on the bald the baldness yeah. And and him being welcomed in, and the fact that uh, Malkovich has married his former assistant, so it's and he's wearing the same clothes as Lester, so subtle but obvious. Um, and as I said before, we, when we were talking about the uh, the alternate ending, very circular. This this ending works, and it seems uh, it, it comes up a lot. It's a satisfying. It's a satisfying ending because there's not a lot of. It's not a feel good feel good movie feel good mm-hmm. um but it's a satisfying finish to a very strange film but i don't i think it's one of those films it deserves a couple of watches at least to get to get everything and it definitely like unlike some of charlie kaufman's later work whether it's uh i'm thinking of ending things or Sinexky new york you're not left at the end of it going what what like do you know what I mean? Like there yeah. is there there is an element of closure and you kind of like yeah, you may need that like I think if you if you if you kind of watch it the first time, really like do you know what I mean? Like pin laser point focus on it washes the, over you. Yeah. You'll 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 get it. Whereas like some of those other films, I think Snetsky New York, like more than any of the others, you could probably watch that ten times and kind of What's he doing <laughs> on, 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 on a plot basis? Like, what what is going on? Do you know what I mean? Like, I've I've seen countless amounts of like video essays on that film where it's like, oh well, if you look at the clock here, if you look at like the dates that are all in the papers, like time's moving at its own rapid rate. I, I need to go back and watch that film because <laughs> I think I was it was what I think I watched that two thousand and nine or something. I think I, I caught it when it when it came on video. And I was I was living by myself in Barcelona, and I was just when I was bored in the evening, I was just I just started a new job. I was watching that, and I was just like, oh, that's a dark, depressing film. But I'd love the fourth wall breaking again in that, where they're making a film about the story. Um, so that that's probably due another rewatch sometime soon. Perfect. And then um, just wanted yeah before we before we score this, just briefly touch on the the score by Carter Burwell, who is like the master of doing understated scores. I think like he's not really one of those composers who's like shouted about a lot of the time, but like, Oh, he's not, he's not, he's not get me such and such, get me, you know, Jerry Goldsmith. He's he's not that type. Get me Hans Zimmer. No, he's not that. He's, he's, he's definitely got, I I really enjoy it. As I, I said earlier in this, and I know it's linked to your occasion in podcast, very Wes Anderson. Very, uh, there's a lot. It's sort of quirky, but it's in- intense, nice classical music um, when it needs to be, and over the top when there's not much going on on the screen, but the audience needs to know the tone of the scene. I think I think he does a very good job of that, and he must have worked in tandem um, with the director. The director, I think, was probably saying, I need a certain type of this music for this scene, and he really got it. Yeah, I think I've like I've been listening to some Carter Burwell uh, interviews recently, just because I find like because he's like he's been like a collaborator with the Cohen brothers throughout their whole career, and like <laughs> like there's a lot when, of that when looking at connections uh, through this, and I was like, wow, he's done a lot of scores 
for stuff that like couple of family members have have been in or like worked on and like yeah i think the score for this film is is fantastic because like you said it plays up the melodrama but at at the same time there's not a tune in it that i could whistle to you right now it seems constant but at the same time, it were it, it kind of blend. Do you know what I mean, it's not forgettable. Is the wrong, the wrong, the wrong terminology to use? It it just it just bleeds in so perfectly to the film. They work so good in tandem that, like, do you know what I mean? It there's not. It doesn't work in the way that it's like Star Wars. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know the tune. It's well, like, oh, this is the moment where we get the fanfare. It's like, no, it just kind of weaves in and out. And I think sometimes with scores that's exactly what you want right you kind of just want something that's like it, it, it helps the story but at the same time doesn't like showboat over the film well yeah i mean for it comes up a lot for us because you know we we try to blend in the some of the score of the films we're doing so we we get into the ost due to creative commons we're actually allowed to use small amounts of of the ost the original soundtrack yeah. Um, and you see it so much, like um, with Cliffhanger that we were we, doing recently, that you get that and it's tracks, you know, it, it's a CD and it's like, duh, 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 duh. what I felt about this film, what I use the word there, constant, is that I, get, I almost get the impression there's an orchestra, you know, like, like you're watching a performance and they come in at the right time and they're, they're almost like following a conductor going, now it's intense, because like I said before, I felt like I was learning what I what was going on in the scene as much from the music as from what I was seeing. Well, it's that thing as well because the whole film, like, it's perfect the way you said, said that. It's, it is like watching like a play or like an opera or some kind of performance because the whole thing opens... with a puppeteer on top controlling yeah. all of the actors with somebody in his mind. Yeah, because <laughs> the, the the whole film opens with the curtains. Right? Yeah, yeah, and it's like oh. Bellissimo. I love it. Um, well, let's get on to, um, yeah, before we score this bad boy, could you find any other Coppola connections with this film? Was there anyone who's in this film who you could pinpoint from another Coppola film? Um, well, I mean, I mentioned earlier that they're not really uh, Coppola connections, rather people who've just been in films with Nick yeah. Cage. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's a Coppola. The, yeah, yeah the, 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 the guy who punches him in the bar is the one of the terrorists from The Rock, the guy who's, um, I think overall, I, I've, said, I've mentioned it a few times, The is it, is it John Schwartzman, the guy who's been in a lot of Wes Anderson films? I, I think there's a lot of Wes Anderson going on in this and a lot of Coppola um, family being in his films. So similarities there. Um, Malkovich um, has been in in Corner with with Nick Cage. What was the other one I was trying to think of? Um, but those are the ones that really stand out uh, when when I think about it. Um, I'm just trying to think. There's, there's probably a few connections with the actors in this with other films they've been in. Cameron Diaz, maybe. Um, but that those are the only ones that that, that spring to mind. Cameron Diaz is a weird one. The only film that she's acted in that has another Coppola in is Slackers, and she has like a cameo as herself, and that's with Jason Schwartzman. One of the one, yeah. So, so I'll I'll list off a couple of the the connections here. So obviously we have Charlie Kaufman who wrote Human Nature, which stars Patricia Arquette, as well as Adaptation, uh, which stars Nicolas Cage. Catherine Keener is in Adaptation, Eight Millimeter, and the Croods 1 and 2, all with Nicolas Cage in them? 
I really enjoyed uh, Eight Millimeter. Um, went went <laughs> to see that with a with a friend at the cinema. I, I remember that. I, I remember that film. Yeah, that was. She she gets she gets a short deal in that though because she kind of like gets nothing to do. She's just on the other end of a phone when Nicolas Cage is going like, "I've seen I've seen depravity. I'm I'm going through it. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to stay out in LA a little longer." She's like, "Okay, we got the baby at home." It's like no, Cage being Cage. Yeah, don't waste Catherine Keener like that. Um, no, sorry, I hadn't really thought about the... No, no, uh, the, the, no and I hadn't thought about the behind-the-camera connections. I'm sure they are plentiful in the Spike oh. Jones to um, her with Scarlett Johansson, Spike Jones in um, Eternal Sunshine, uh, you know, with one of my favourite films, definitely. That, that was one of those films, once again, I know I'm harking on about this too much, but then again, I do do a podcast dedicated <laughs> to the 90s. But these films, when they came out, things like Fight Club and Spotless Mind, they had these moments uh, at the end of the film where you're just like, it was like a ride. Yeah, well, I mean, it was an artistic piece, and then boom, at the end, you get the the twist. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, lo- I, I love his films. And as I mentioned earlier, her, you know, that great I think that's an uh, like we were talking about self AI. It's going to keep coming up, and he's dealt with it brilliantly on more than one occasion. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And there's a there's one connection I wanted to mention. And it's just a tonal connection. Is that both being John Malkovich and Rocky deal with uh, a loser who wants to achieve their dream, who has a girlfriend who works in a pet shop. <laughs> I would love to see John Cusack uh, v. v. Sylvester Stallone in a boxing film. That would be interesting. Perfect. It's like one of us is going to, one of them lifting weights and getting physical, and the other using his acting. Just do it. Just make it already. Well, John, 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 John Cusack. If I, if I'm not mistaken. Oh no, he's he's beefed up. He's beefed up in certain films. Yeah, he, and he's, he can. He can... He, he's like trained by like Benny the Jet. Like, uh, yeah, we, we we covered that when yeah. we were talking about Gross Point. Is um, that's a brilliant. I think we talked about how um, believable it is because he he trained so much with him, and it was his decision. He was like, um, so which stuntman are you going to get for the scene? He's like, well, you you're you're going to be the the assassin because yeah. <laughs> no, I can't spar with anybody like I can with you. So uh, that's what I was talking about before about about high di- diverses ranges. In mm. you've got him in Corner being the. Um, the, the desk the desk jockey who's out of his who's trying to bring the plane down and and he's not getting involved in any of the Russell tussle and then you've you've got him in kicking ass and gross point blank and uh yeah I mean I don't know it's a it's a weird one we all know who John Cusack is we all know we've all got our favorites I think a lot of us would say probably Conair or high fidelity but he's made a lot of films and I don't think underrated is the term but it's surprising that I think what's most surprising about his career is that he hasn't been active of late. We haven't seen a lot of John Cusack films in the last 10 or 20 years, or not enough, in my opinion. The last thing I saw him in was the American remake of the TV series Utopia. I'm not sure if you remember. But we are reaching. We we are reaching then, aren't we? uh, Yeah, and it's like, I don't know. Um, I'm not going to tell the story again because I've told it too many times on this podcast. But once upon a just time, just edit it in, just cut and paste. <laughs> I, 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 I got blocked by um, John Cusack on Twitter years ago, and uh, uh, I, I, for a while I, I had beef with John Cusack. But it, I've 
in myself, I've settled the beef. I'm, I know I no longer have uh, hatred or not hate. I know oh, no, I, I, I think he's I think he's a heady guy. I, th- <laughs> I, th- I think that that comes through uh, the screen, the page, however you want to. I've heard him in interviews. Um, I mean, he's I mean, you've seen that Harrison Ford, one of your favorite actors, hates doing interviews. Um, doesn't want to. And there's, there's certain people. Bruce Willis hates doing junkets and interviews. But with with Cusack, it's a different thing. Yeah, he doesn't like the general. He's like Alan Partridge. He doesn't like the general public. Um, I, I love the <laughs> I love the John Cusack mo, uh, interview clip where there's obviously somebody who's like out of their depth, who's like first first junkie yeah. interview goes. Oh, it's really weird. I'm supposed to be in like college today, and they're watching American Beauty, and he's like, "Why is that weird?" She's like, "You're in that film," and he's like, "No, no." Yeah, yeah. Oh it's, dear. I thought it was like, "Are you sure?" And he's like, "Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Like, I'm pretty sure I'm not in American Beauty." Yeah, I, I don't think he suffers fools. I think he's got a short temper. <laughs> but I mean, this this goes back into the fact that yeah, I think. Um, I think maybe the reason he hasn't done so well is maybe he hasn't played the game as well as some other actors have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he's got the talent. He has got the talent. Well, yeah. Let, let's hope uh, he does. He does a, a late sequel or something like that. Or uh, or uh, he's counting down another list in high. Say something. Say something. Say something. Say something. God damn it! <laughs> let me ask you this question. Which celebrity would you enter the mind of for 15 minutes? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, is that dead or alive? Or um, Yeah, d- dead or alive, e- e- either or. Um, I, th- I think... I-, I mentioned it before. We covered him recently in homage to his recent passing. Sean Connery, obviously. Um, one of the greats. Um, cr- I mean, I guess actors that I just, it, I mean, I'm going to talk about actors. Uh, you could say any famous person, but we're going to talk about actors. This is about films. Uh, Christopher Walken. <laughs> what the hell's going on in that guy's head? Um, if we're talking dead or alive, Christopher Walken, what was going on in his head during the making of A View to a Kill? Um, the, guy's, the guy played a psychopath almost so perfectly. He must be a psychopath. Um so yeah, but pe- people are, and obviously let's let's give this podcast the due. Uh, Nicholas Cage, man. Yeah. I'm not sure which Nicholas Cage. Um, most recently, uh, as I said, I really enjoyed your uh, Spider Verse uh, podcast episode. I found that I love that film, and I loved hearing you and your uh, animator friend talk going into so much detail. But his performance in that—it's right. so economic. Yeah. Uh, I because I'm it's on. I'd say a monthly repeat. My son's going through a bit of a Spider-Man phase, and he's like, "Spider, Spider's like, should we put on Spider Verse?" I'm like pushing him more <laughs> towards that than the Toby McGuire ones. <laughs> so yeah, probably Nick Cage. Um, but yeah, I got a lot of love for a lot of actors. But yeah, I think off off the bat. Yeah, be Bond, be be Sean Connery, be that demanding, stubborn Scott. Yeah, I I, I think Nick Cage would be an interesting one because oh god, yeah, any day he, of the week, Nick Cage. <laughs> he, he, well, he's you hear all these like myths about him, and it's that thing of like, I don't know, off the screen, I I kind of it's in my mind, it's like he almost doesn't exist. Do you know what I mean? It's like what would what would that guy? Because you see these photos of him in like a pink biker jacket, and it's like. What's he doing? Like, I imagine the 15 minutes you got is like, I can imagine Nick Cage at a supermarket. 
I couldn't imagine like Nick Cage doing like day like daily like doing the washing up like that. That for me would be that would probably be under underwhelming. You'd want the fifteen minutes on set where he's arguing with the scriptwriter or the director. No, I think I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to do yeah. this. You know, like when like if you could think of if you could pick a moment in time, we are really nitpicking about these fifteen minutes. Um, maybe <laughs> to, to answer maybe to answer that question appropriately, it should be which actor would I like to spend 15 minutes in right now? Um, <laughs> I don't know. There's no films coming out of cinema. It's difficult. It's difficult to say. <laughs> Amazing. Well, let's not get too bogged down that. Otherwise, we'll be here all night. Um, so what would be your perfect wine pairing for this film? Obviously, the Coppola's are synonymous now with wine. What, what, would, you, what would you like to drink with this film? Um, well, I, me having the benefit of living in France, uh, I can buy supermarket wine for half the price it costs in the UK. So, <laughs> um, but for no, for me, I, I think Bordeaux is more for food, for eating. So for me, it would be a light wine, like a Côte de Bruy, a Bruy or a Julienas. Uh, so kind of like, it's kind of Côte de Rhone sort of great, but it's, uh, from an English point of view, just read that as session wine, you know. <laughs> you don't need to be eating and you can drink lots of it without getting too much of a sore head. Yeah, I, 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 for me, this has definitely got like a, a red wine vibe about it because it's definitely got like some richer, like deeper flavours to it. And it's that kind of thing. It's like, oh yeah, like you have that first sip and it's like, you have that first glass and like, oh, maybe I need to have like, I don't know, a bit of bitterness in there. It's like, I've got, I've got to try another glass of that. Maybe I'll like it on a second time. And I think that's the perfect way to kind of like enjoy this film on the first watch. You might be like, Oh, that was an interest. That was interesting. Let, like let's fully appreciate it. Maybe with a, with a second go around. Um, so how much, how much, yeah. If this film were a bottle of wine, how much are you paying for that? Is it are we turning over the page onto the expensive stuff, or are we keeping it nice and reasonable? No, I mean for the amount of wine that I consume, it can't be that expensive. <laughs> uh, I've got, I'm, I'm sitting here in my cave. I have I have got a few bottles laid down, and no, no, for me, I'm I guess on English terms about tenner. Yeah, but between. I think for me, I, I take a lot of joy in discovering great <laughs> wine between the five. I mean, if I'm buying wine for a friend, then I would obviously pay 15, 20 or 30 if they were a good friend for that <laughs> ball for a great occasion. But no, if it's just little old me and I'm going to skull it, you know, it's probably going to be between five and 10 pounds. But I say that living in France, I'm, I've, I'm very lucky that I can go to the supermarket and buy some very good wine in that price range. Perfect. Well, um, would you recommend people watch this film if they if they if they, ha if they if they haven't and they've got this far in the podcast they're obviously going to have ruined it for themselves but yeah would you recommend this film well first of all edit yeah i mean watch this film <laughs> first uh second edit yeah i mean definitely get some wine but yeah um as i said earlier on uh we were talking about dvds the fact that you can cut and jump throughout a film this is one of these things that if you like film you have to watch this film it's a discussion of the mind it's a discussion of the self it's, it's about celebrities it's about actors it's about the industry um if you're into film or even if you just like something a bit different highly i think i'd recommend it but it's not for everyone it's it's definitely um probably not as many car chases uh in it as you as some people might like and that comes from somebody who loves a good car chase but sometimes you you've got to sit back and and let the brain do the work rather than the eyes be wowed by the effects. So yeah, highly recommend this. Um, and, and I think for anybody who hasn't actually 
got around to what is wanted to listen to the podcast to maybe convince themselves to go back and watch that film. I don't think we've spoiled it too much because even hearing everything we've discussed, you will still go back and you'll have your own experience of it. Um, so yeah, man, check, check it out if you haven't. And if you haven't watched it in a while, go and give it another watch. Let me ask you, this is, this is an unfair question and I'm kind of glad that I'm the one asking it and not answering it is, which Coppola family member would you keep? But in doing so, you get rid of the entire filmographies of the rest of the family. Okay, it's a, it's a tough question, and I've got a <laughs> two-part answer. So, uh, I mean, the, the academic response is you have, to keep, you have to keep Frankie Boy. You have to keep, it would, in terms of what they did for cinema, you've got to keep the Godfather trilogy, you've got to keep Apocalypse Now, uh, you wouldn't have his children, you wouldn't have the offspring, blah, 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 blah. That's... That's the sensible actor. But man, a world without Nicolas Cage, I don't want to live in that world. Man. <laughs> I don't, and I'm not just saying that because I'm on this podcast. I mean, even, um, you know, we t- it's, if we're talking about straight family members. There's, um, I can't remember if it's Jason or John Schwartzman who's in all the Wes Anderson films and he's Jason, had, had a big, yeah, Im- yeah, yeah. Jason, he's had a big impact on those films. He's been a very big part of those films. Um, but yeah, man, no Nick Cage. I, I watched for the first time recently uh, Raising Arizona when he was so young. Uh, and the Coen brothers were so young. Mm-hmm. And and I think I thought I'd seen everything that the Coen brothers could do. Um, but so, yeah, there's my answer. Yeah, you've got to keep Francis Ford Coppola. But, you know, if, if it was up to me, I'd be keeping Nick Cage. But if there were people watching, I'd keep Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, you're, you're, you're the king of this domain. You can keep Nick Cage, don't worry. I think I'd, ki- I'd, ki- I'd, ki- I'd kill the rest of them and keep Nick Cage. Um, he's, he's been the one who's had the most impact on my life, to be fair. Perfect. That's what, that's what we want from this podcast. Um, and, uh, yeah. Are they the greatest film family of all time? Well, I mean, the Baldwins have got nothing on them. Um, <laughs> so, no, I mean, the, the reason I put it like that is I can't think of another family that has had so much of a, an influence on cinema that cross-generationally has continued to have... They're, they're set. They've got their minds set on it. I mean, I joke about the Baldwins, who are just a bunch of brothers who all got the same agent and made some films and stuff, and, and some have been much more successful than others. But what you've got here, uh, some people say dynasty, uh, sorry, royalty. It's a dynasty. You know, it's like, there's, I say, multi-generational, and they've delivered great work. And we're talking about Spike Jones tonight, who just happened to marry one of the, even the people that they interact with deliver good qualities. So, yeah, I can't, I mean, you, this is where you come in. Um, can, can you suggest another family that would even come close? I can't, I can't, no, no one springs to mind. No, the sheer breadth of this family is ridiculous in the, the, the fact that the amount of people and the kind of range of films that they're, they're involved in and stuff like that. There's obviously other arguably great film families whether you look at the arquettes for instance they're 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 possibly up there they've got some um especially uh, but even then even then they they bleed into the copplers with uh patricia arquette and her yeah her five-year stint with nicholas cage or um the houstons so angelica um her, her father and her grandfather like they're one of the only other families to have a free free generational oscar wins as well yeah that's the thing it's about it's about the generations and it's about the results Mm because yeah i mean i think of um and i'm sure more to come out but you know there's the um 
is it Ron Howard and Bryce Dallas Howard? And then you've got the likes of um, Kurt Russell's son is really making a name for himself in the in the Falcon and Winter Soldier. And yeah. I saw him in Black Mirror. And he looks like a great actor. And I think he's going to get... So there's, there's that, where you've got... Um, you know, father, son, you know, like, but this thing, that's the thing that stands out about the, the Coppolas is that, um, yeah, they, 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 they get results. They make great films and they get results and they, they don't muck about. Yeah. You know. <laughs> the net is definitely very wide with the Coppolas. So yeah, it's, it's arguably it's uh, quite an unfair question to ask because it very much falls in my favor from week to week, but I'm not going to complain. So um, let me ask you possibly the, most important question on this podcast which is what does bill murray say to scarlett johansson at the end of lost in translation okay so um there's what he actually said and what his car and what we think his character might have said so knowing bill murray and i've got a lot of love for the guy um you know growing up growing up through throughout his films he probably said something to her like where do you want to go for lunch or um <laughs> have you seen he, he say something completely off the books but i guess his character what i'd like to think he says to her is something along the lines of if if i was 10 years younger would you run away with me you know something like that that's what we're all kind of thinking at the end i don't know if that's come up before on your on, on when you've been covering this but i guess that's what everyone kind of thinks. They don't get together. Do they get together? Is it ambiguous? But the, the fact that he whispers something and you don't hear it, I, I would suppose, um, I mean, what I would suppose it'd be, so, that, that's very much in the director's head. But if it was up to Bill Murray, it'd be something like about, I know the best cheeseburger place. Right the it'd, be, it'd be something like that. I mean, yeah. That that guy's that, that guy's just amazing. The fact that he's, he's done things like, uh, as, as I'm sure you know, he does this thing where, you go and buy people cinema tickets or go to and then he, he turns and he says, they'll never believe you. You know, maybe, he maybe, know, he, maybe that's he, what he says at the end, because obviously he's supposed to be playing a, a famous actor. He just says to her, no, no one will ever believe you that you had this kind of like nearly dalliance with a with a with a with an actor. Older man. No, but uh, yeah, no, but yeah, it's um, what, what his character said is probably not as interesting as what he actually probably did. <laughs> Either way, she giggles. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, where can people find, uh, yeah, the great uh, Retro Ramble podcast, Charlie? Well, we, um, we, we obviously believe podcasts are forever, um, but they are our recordings that are out there. But to get in touch with us and to see what we're getting up to, just hit the website, the blog. It's uh, retroramble.blog. We're obviously connected to all um, the good and evil uh, social media channels. Um, but yeah, yeah, we're just, it's just me and my brother. Um, we cover the films of 80s and 90s. We've done Conair. We've done The Rock. Uh, Nick, Nick, Nick Cage and uh, Malkovich pop up and Cusack pop up. This is very much in our wheelhouse, so it was an absolute <laughs> pleasure um, just to come on and support somebody who's fighting the same fight, making awareness of the people that really matter in this world, the Nicholas Cages, the John Markoviches. So, yeah, that's that's, that's what we do. Um, we just, we, you know, we, we've watched these films growing up. Uh, my brother's much more of a film buff. He's got qualifications and stuff and still <laughs> operates in the industry. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm just the schmo who works in the background and, and is the host and I'm his brother. So we do what we always did, which is, uh, George tells me shit about films. And I'm like, wow. And then we, <laughs> we, take, we, we, we make fun of it. But, uh, looking back now, I mean, these films are still being 
people still making franchises out of a lot of them. Uh, Hollywood's running out of ideas and um, <laughs> we, we enjoy making fun of them. So yeah, check us out. Um, but also, yeah, keep listening to this podcast because we like this podcast. Anything, anything to do with Nicolas Cage. Oh yeah, Face Off. Face Off, that was, that was fun. And that's, that's, yeah. that's going to be um, remade. I'm just going to put this out there. Maybe, maybe we get you on our podcast for, for whenever the new Face Off comes out, even <laughs> if it's got Nick Cage in or not. But we we've we've made it very clear to Hollywood that we're not going to watch it unless it has got Nick Cage and John Travolta in it. So we're just waiting for feedback. Well, yeah, it's been announced <laughs> that it's a sequel as well, which makes yeah. me think like it's I'm your ho- kids, it's your kids, Marty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping there's some bizarre science in that Nick Cage can come back. Because obviously, if you go to the end, what well, more bizarre, more bizarre than the first one where he can become John Travolta's body. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, that, like, well, in the fact that you can bring people back from the dead or, like, they must, they've got, they've got clones of his face somewhere. That it was have, a dream. We can have multiple <laughs> Nick Cages. I want to see, I want to see, like, three Nick Cages. I want to, I want to see, see some terrible de-aging as well. I want to see, yeah. like, some bits where it's got, I want to I flash forward so they can explain why he now looks like he does. Like, yeah, if, it will be beautiful. Well, anyway, thank you, Charlie, for stepping into the mind of being John Malkovich with me, joining me in the dance of despair and dissolution, and making some couple of connections. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's been a great film. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad I got to do this film because uh, I know there's there's a lot within the family to choose from. So, um, just like it is, it's one of the best things about doing these sort of podcasts is that you don't realize how much you you need a reason sometimes to go back and watch <laughs> these films. And uh, it was great to go back and watch it. So thank you very much. Where the fuck am I? Shit, on the New Jersey Turnpike. Oh, fucking hell. Oh, one second. Oh, where the fuck is my phone? Oh, here it is. Oh. You have reached the voicemail of the Breadcrumbs Collective. Please leave your message at the beep. Beep. Hello, Jonathan. Yeah, it's, it's Petros. I'm, I'm currently stranded on the New Jersey Turnpike. If there's any way you can try and get me back to the UK somehow, uh, that would be great. But in the meantime, if you could please thank everybody for listening to the podcast. Of course, thanks Charlie McGee for coming and chatting about being John Malkovich with me. And let people know that they can get in touch with the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd, all at Caged in Pod. Or if they'd like to leave me an email, it'll be cagedinpod at gmail.com. And alternatively, if they don't want to listen to the podcast on a podcast platform, they can listen to it at breadcrumbscollective.com. I haven't got much charge on my phone but I'll explain everything that's happened uh, when I get back. I'll, I'll hopefully be able to find a charger in the next few days. But if you could also let people know that next week's podcast, I'll be chatting to Boyd Hilton all about Francis Ford Coppola's 1981 financial and critical flop, One From The Heart. It's a great conversation and I can't wait for people to hear it. I just hope I can get back in time to edit it and make sure everything's all right. Please, Jonathan, uh, let, let me know if, if there's anything you can do to get me back. Um, 
I don't, I don't have my passport or anything, but hopefully we'll be able to figure something out. Um, I, I guess this is a, a weird situation, right? Last thing, remind people that they can rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever they're listening to this podcast right now. And that I've been Petros Patsilovas, their guide through the crazy world of the Coppola family tree. And to remember to keep it Coppola, and I'll catch them next time, okay? This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs is more than a podcast network. It's family. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.